From breaking news to local stories happening where you live, this is the Jill Bennett Show podcast. Good afternoon, and thank you so much for being with us on this Tuesday afternoon. We are going to talk a little bit more about what is happening in the city of Surrey. As you've likely heard by now, a big announcement from Surrey's mayor yesterday, Brenda Locke saying that city is taking another step forward to stop the police transition to the Surrey Police Service. She talked about the fact that there would be a double-digit tax hike on Surrey taxpayers if that goes ahead, and that's why they have amended their court submission, filing an additional submission to stop the latest legislation, questioning whether or not the amendments to that legislation, the amendments made by the province, are constitutional. So what does this actually mean moving forward? Peter German is joining us now, lawyer for the City of Surrey, also a former RCMP executive. Peter German, thank you so much for coming back on the show. Jill, it's a pleasure. What does this actually mean uh, as far as the the fight to not go forward with the Surrey Police Service and questioning uh, the constitutionality of that amendment in the courts? Well, you explained it uh, quite well. It it really is a case of, you know, what is the uh, limit of the provincial government's power when dealing with municipalities? Uh, the municipalities are responsible for policing, and in this situation, uh, the municipality is not getting its wish. Uh, the province has essentially given it power with the Police Act and is now taking it away. And that in and of itself might not seem like a big issue, but it's the dollars and cents attached to it which does make it a significant issue for Surrey taxpayers and obviously why uh, the mayor and council are quite concerned. But is there a way that going through the courts that this will actually stop the transition to the Surrey Police Service? Well, that's certainly one outcome. Um, You know, it really is for the Supreme Court to decide based on the arguments which it hears from uh, the various parties. Uh, And, you know, there's no way of, uh, you know, determining what what they're going to do at this stage. But... um, the court case will will end at some point, and we will get uh, some sort of a decision, and uh, that's really what the Surrey is looking for. And when you say it will end at some point, but uh, anybody who's been involved with courts or followed along with courts knows that they don't go speedy. They're not speedy uh, applications. They can take quite some time. Do you have any idea on a timeline or how long this could potentially take? Right. Well, certainly, you know, cases can take a while, but this is a petition and they tend to go uh, faster uh, than a normal civil case. So the hope is that this will be dealt with expeditiously by by the court. Um, And, uh, you know, in the interim, uh, the transition is is still in progress. Um, So, uh, you know, matters continue and uh, policing continues and the RCMP remains the police force of jurisdiction until this is resolved. And when you say, though, you hope that it will be dealt with expeditiously, are you talking weeks, months? Do you have an idea? Yeah, I, I really don't. Uh, that I, I am not uh, one of the lawyers that is um, uh, involved in the actual litigation. There is a civil litigation firm representing the city of Surrey. I act in, in a consultancy role, but I think it's reasonable to assume it's not going to be days and it's probably not weeks. It's probably more like months, but... Uh, you know, that's really hard to uh, estimate at this point. The real issue behind all of this is that money and cost keeps accumulating. And if this transition were to can, were to take place, uh, Surrey has estimated that the cost could be somewhere in the area of a half billion dollars to Surrey taxpayers over 10 years. 
So, you know, the cost of a court case is probably quite minimal by comparison to the generational expenses, as the uh, the mayor put it yesterday. Right. And that's what Mayor Locke was talking about when she said this isn't just a one year, uh, one year double digit tax increase. This is something that is going to impact residents for years to come. That's correct. I mean, there is definitely a gap in terms of the cost of the RCMP and the cost of a municipal force. And that's not to say one is better than the other, uh, and not for a minute. Uh, it, this isn't about the color of a police officer's stripe. But, for example, you lose a subsidy from the federal government immediately after you leave the RCMP. Um, you know, there are various different economies uh, that the RCMP provides uh, and, and we, we also don't have a plan from the Surrey Police Service in terms of what its policing model looks like. Will there be one-person cars, two-person cars? You know, what, what is their, the total resources that they will need if, you know, in place? Uh, isn't that, though, what the administrator, what former Abbotsford Police Chief Mike Sear has been tasked with doing now with the suspension of the Surrey Police Board and Mike Sear in that position? Isn't the idea being he will bring forward a budget and, and will be answering a lot, if not all of those questions? Yes, one would hope so. Uh, now, he's got a steep job ahead of him in the next couple of weeks because the budget uh, is due uh, and uh, it'll be for uh, Surrey Surrey's council to to consider that budget but really it is up to the board which has been suspended and now Mike Sear to come up with that uh, plan and and the costing of it uh, and then it's up to the city of Surrey uh, and its council to determine whether that is something that it can live with or not. And I think there's been a lot of kind of connecting those dots, though, hasn't there, that even if whatever Mike Sear comes up with as far as the budget and putting that forward to the council, it seems that there is little chance that the current council is going to approve any budget that comes forward. Yeah, well, I'm certainly not in a position to, uh, Jill, to speak for what council may or may not do, but I, I think there is a certain reality here, and that we've already discussed that that is the you know, the cost factor. And uh, I would be quite surprised if, uh, if uh, Mr. Sear can come in with uh, a budget that uh, does not exceed what uh, would occur with the RCMP in the normal course of events. I just don't know how he would do that. You mentioned as well the cost of this court action and the expanded court action uh, that, yes, it does pale in, t- in comparison to what any police force, I think, would cost over a 10-year period. But it is still a cost to Surrey taxpayers uh, and taxpayers that have said they are concerned about the amount of money being used to fight this when the Solicitor General has been very clear that no matter what, the future of policing in Surrey is going to be the Surrey Police Service. Well, two things. Uh, yes, the Solicitor General has said that, but equally, the mayor has said we're going to ask the court whether that is correct or not. And number two, uh, yes, people want this to be resolved, but I think what the people of Surrey want is safe and efficient policing, and they have safe and efficient policing. No one has questioned the public safety uh, that the RCMP has brought to the city of Surrey for 70 years. Um, and, and the other thing Surrey taxpayers, I suspect, want is no tax increase, certainly not a double-digit tax increase. So, yes, you are spending money to fight a case in court, but, you know, uh, the, the, uh, the hope, I'm sure, of the mayor and council is that at the end of the day, it will prevent them having to impose some sort of, you know, horrendous tax increase.
Uh, Peter, I just want to play for you a bit. This was a question that was put to uh, the Solicitor General, Mike Farnworth. It uh, starts with asking if he has concerns about whatever budget Mike Sear comes up with, it, if, it, if it's not passed. And it gets into the issue as well of the current state of policing. And I just want to get your reaction to this. No, I'm not. Um, the reality is there are mechanisms in place under the Police Act to deal with those kinds of situations. Um, the, uh, the administrator uh, will be submitting a budget to the City of Surrey. Uh, if, for example, the City of Surrey were to you know, say that we're not happy with the budget, uh, that goes to the Director of Police Services uh, for them to make a uh, decision or recommendations or changes or what have you. Uh, that's been a, in existence in the Police Act for a long time and has been used from time to time. How oh, worried are you about uh, the latest legal challenge? Oh, uh, once more, I think it's just an example of uh, delaying tactics by the mayor, um, and I think all it does is cost uh, taxpayers uh, money, and it is a waste of money and a waste of time. How do you respond to how he sums up this uh, second lawsuit, this additional legal action? Well, actually, I, I heard the former uh, public safety minister, uh, Cash Heed, uh, yesterday, and, and he actually warned the province that they they should be careful you know in terms of uh th this uh case that uh there might very well be uh, something uh you know uh, to it and uh, that the the city is not just uh, flailing away uh, i mean this this is really about the limits of the provincial government's authority in dealing with a municipality and imposing costs on it which gets to the first part of the solicitor general's comments and that is, what would he do if the Surrey, if Surrey rejects uh, the budget? Well, uh, as he's indicated, he, it would be referred to his staff. And there are provisions in the Police Act where uh, presumably the Solicitor General could impose, uh, you know, a budget on the city of Surrey. And, uh, you know, I just don't want to hypothesize where, where that takes us. But, uh, you know, certainly that's what we're, we're trying not to do or what the Surrey and its council are trying not to do is increase the cost to Surrey taxpayers. Well, we will uh, continue to follow along and wait for that budget. Peter German, as always, thank you so much for joining the show today. Appreciate your time. You're most welcome, Jill. Thanks a lot. Ladies and gentlemen. Ladies and Yes, the Rolling Stones. Big news for Stones fans. They have announced a North American tour. It's going to happen next year. And Vancouver is the only Canadian spot on that itinerary. Well, we're going to talk about that in some other music news. Joining us now, Eric Alper, music publicist and commentator. Eric, great to have you back on the show. Well, thanks for having me. I guess that people should start to save up for those <laughs> tickets at the BC Place. I'm sure that they're. I'm sure that it's going to be the exact same prices when they went on tour back in 1972 for four dollars and ninety three cents. Right, just a, just a, just a little bit for inflation, but very close. Yeah, just maybe maybe seven dollars top. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know we are, are giving away some of those tickets on this station on our, our morning show with Simi, so there will be a chance to win some tickets. But you're right. these uh, I would imagine these are going to be expensive tickets. 
Yeah, and that's the way that I think people should just be used to it by now with the Rolling Stones and Taylor Swift and Ed Sheeran and Drake, SZA, among others, all cracking the five to $600 a ticket mark, but the Rolling Stones are easily going to beat that and also become one of the biggest tours of 2024. Whenever this band goes out on tour, um, it, it's always, a, it's, always a, 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 it's, it's just a momentous occasion. Look, there's not too many people that are in their 80s that still want to go out and perform live and still want to make vital new music. And we should just all be really lucky and happy that the Rolling Stones are all here. Exactly. Now, have you seen the Rolling Stones perform? I have. I saw them in 81, and then I saw them a couple of times after that in both big clubs and small clubs. And there's nothing, there's nothing like breathing the same air as Mick Jagger and Keith Richards. I mean, at the end of it all, Keith Richards is going to be the last one standing out of any, out of, any of this. Forget about the band. I, I think he's just going to last until about he's 130. I mean, I think it's really time that we all start thinking about what kind of world we want to leave Keith Richards. <laughs> I guess I've heard them make that comment before. I love that that comment. Um, there, there is something as well. I have not seen them in concert, but I know you have. And in talking to other people, there is something about the energy of that show. And there's a reason why people make a big deal or react this way when they find out that they are coming back to Vancouver and there's a chance to see them. Yeah, you know, you want to see the body. You want to see all of the, the, those at least three guys with Mick Jagger, Keith Richards, and Ron Wood um, perform the songs that um, almost feel like they were brought down from the sky. That you can't believe that an artist had actually written the songs that we all know and love. And they're not going to be doing, you know, the entire brand new album for people who haven't heard it yet. Um, they'll do a couple of songs from, from there. Um, but for the most part, though, it'll be 23 to 25 of the greatest rock and roll songs you've ever heard. And people just want to see that. They want to live the, that, that nostalgia period, and they want to um, realize that seeing the Rolling Stones is still an event in their lives that they'll never forget. What is it, do you think, that keeps them going in that it's not like they need the money or they need to be doing this, but they still want to go on tour and do these shows? The only thing that I can really think of, and I've talked to a lot of artists that are, are in this sort of area where they're in their 60s or 70s, young pups compared to the Rolling Stones. Um, and this is what they honestly believe, that they were put on earth to perform and that there's no other rhyme or reason for it. There's something in them that doesn't get bored by the travel or the hotels or the food or the meeting people with the meet and greet. And it sounds like fun, but and it is, but it's also a mental and physical grind that um, stops people much younger from wanting to do it in frustration or their mental health breaks down or they develop drug and alcohol problems. And with Keith, Mick, and Ron, they've done all that and they've gotten through all of the problems in fine form. So the, what else are they really going to do? I'm sure that each of their wives and ex-wives want to kick them out around 8 o'clock at night anyway, going, you need to get out. You need to get out and play. And this is what they were here to do. It almost feels like, too, if, if they stopped doing this, that would be it. That, that would, what, what else would they do? It doesn't feel like they're going to go golfing or go on a cruise. No, they don't want a garden. <laughs> they're, they're, this, is, this is who they I, I mean, this isn't just what they do anymore. This is just who they are. And Paul McCartney and Ringo Starr are the same thing. There's just something 
um, that burns inside of them. A little bit of, of it is ego, certainly. There's, there's nothing like having 80,000 people applaud your every move for two and a half to three hours. Um, but there's also something else about the looking at the chart and having the Rolling Stones album at number three on in in North America and them positively hating number one and number two. I mean, there's still something about them that says Ed Sheeran is not going to take the crown from us of the biggest tour next year. We want it. We're hungry. We're going to go out and get it. Were you surprised at all that they continued going and almost seamlessly? I mean, there was also a pandemic thrown in there for good measure, but that they were able to go out and perform, I think, was it uh, 2021, the first time that they performed without Charlie Watts after Charlie Watts passed away? I honestly thought that after Charlie Watts had passed away that that was going to be it because he was the engine of the band. The rest of the band members have said that this is really Charlie Watts' band. Um, And I'm sure that they just kind of had those business meetings and said, look, if we want to stop, we can stop. But I think when you're in the Rolling Stones, I think you have to die in order to get out of the band. And I believe that. I stopped thinking about that they were too old for it. Um, really in the 1980s when I just kept looking at artists like B.B. King or Buddy Guy or all of these amazing blues guitarists that were still going on and nobody was saying boo about that. You know, you would never say to B.B. King, you know, how dare you still perform in your 75th year? They did it because they wanted to do it and as long as there was an audience out there for it, they just went on the road. So I never saw the Rolling Stones or Paul McCartney or Ringo or Styx or Kansas or any of these classic rock bands to have any fault to them. Exactly. And I think too when people look at that and whether you're a huge fan or or you just respect the music you look at this band and not that any of us is is like one of these members of the band but I know, Eric, we we tend to look at them or people do and think, well, if they're still doing this in their 80s and they've not exactly treated their bodies well, it kind of gives (laughs) hope for the rest of us, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Look, I'm already on my fourth bottle of whiskey, and I'm feeling pretty good right now. Um, But yeah, you know, this is a band that went through, um, you know, kicking out of band members in the 1960s. Brian Jones died in the 1960s at the age of 27, and people thought that that would be it for this band at a time when, in the 1960s, nobody thought that anybody would be around longer than two years. In fact, after the Beatles' third album, they were still asking Ringo Starr and George Harrison what they were going to do when this was all over because nobody had any idea that it was going to be a this big of a business and b that you can actually work in rock and roll music and survive and they managed to do it um and they've kept i think that the, the main reason why that they've been able to keep going is because of the breaks that they've had in between they don't make a new album every year they don't tour every year and it allowed that, you know, the fondest, you know, the absence makes the heart go fonder. And I think that they really, truly enjoy playing with the three of them. Uh, Eric, you mentioned some of the other or some other really big names in music right now. And it wasn't that long ago we were talking about the uh, the reaction when we found out that Taylor Swift was also going to be coming to Vancouver uh, in about a year from now. Uh, some very sad news out of a Taylor Swift uh, concert in South America with a fan actually passing away. Uh, how does this impact a tour? Um, it, 
you start to close ranks on it. You know, once word got out that there was 140 degree Fahrenheit inside the stadium in Brazil and bottled water was close to 15 or $20 Canadian for that, you're going to have a lot of problems. And in fact, there was a woman that lost consciousness and then ended up passing away um, at the show. When that happens, you just close ranks when you're Taylor Swift. You put out a statement offering your condolences um, and you try to mitigate any potential legal battles that you as an artist are going to face, even though that you may not directly be at all responsible for the high cost of of water or the fact that the venue doesn't allow drinks and food into your venue that you're playing at, that's up to the promoters and the venues. You really want to kind of step away from it as much as you possibly can. The father of the woman is now threatening a lawsuit, not against Taylor Swift, but I wouldn't be surprised if somewhere down the line, if that father doesn't get what he wants in terms of media attention and uh, compensation, then you start to bring in the artist just to make sure that everybody is fully aware that this lawsuit is going on. But this affects artists forever. I've talked to members of Pearl Jam when 11 people died at their concert a number of years ago, and they're still they still had those nightmares in the middle of the night sometimes of, of people being crushed. I've talked to Roger Daltrey and Pete Townsend when 11 people got crushed in Cincinnati, and they, it still bothers them that that many people had died and lost their lives seeing a concert. So um, it's a horrible uh, thing, and, you know, the, the fan base just has to take care of one another when something like this happens. Is this a bit of a reality check, though, as well? And, and again, and I'm glad that you brought up those examples, even though they're, they're very sad examples. But this has happened before. Is it another example, though, of the the hype and the frenzy and the people that should be looking out for fans and should be aware that when it's 140 degrees, when it feels like that, that is not a sustainable temperature, that those things still need to be paid attention to and and need to be put uh, put in check? Absolutely. You know, when things like this happen, it shocks the entire music industry, as well as the concert industry, who starts to take a look at maybe outside venues and maybe taking a look at those prices. There's two big problems that are that are going to stop really any momentous change. The first is, you know, climate control and climate change. We're going to get used to these really hot temperatures. Um, And the second thing um, about it is that, you know, when you have 60,000 people in a venue, there's There's not a whole lot that could be done when you can't bring in your own food and drink. I'm sure that most people out there would love to treat concerts like the movie theaters where you're finally, after decades, allowed to bring in your own drinks and food when you're seeing a movie. Um, But the fact is that we as human beings can't handle that kind of freedom. We start to bring in alcohol. You start to have overdoses and alcohol poisoning and underage drinking. You just can't handle that kind of freedom free stuff, free for all, um, in order to impede the problem. And they make a lot of money on those food and drinks. As anybody would go to an entertainment or sports event has realized, you go to a hockey game and it's, you know, 17 to $20 for a bottle of beer. So that's where they make their money. So I don't think anything's going to change except for maybe making sure that, um, that there's water stations that are freely available for people who need it. All right, Eric, thank you so much for joining us today and talking more about this. We will talk to you again soon. Thank you so much for having me. We'll talk soon.
Well, if you are somebody that gets a headache after having just a little bit of red wine, there might be some new scientific research that explains why. Despite that ongoing speculation about the source of a sudden headache, that whether or not it's because of too much wine or a single glass of wine, scientists have reached an answer to the question. This is all contained in a preliminary peer-reviewed study. It was published yesterday in Scientific Reports where researchers at the University of California looked into why the red wine headache happens to people who normally don't suffer from headaches when drinking other types of alcohol. And joining me to talk more about these findings is Dr. Morris Levin, Professor of Neurology and Director of the Headache Center at the University of California, San Francisco, also a co-author of this study. Dr. Levin, thank you so much for your time. Oh, it's nice to be here with you, and I like your choice of songs when it is the topic. <laughs> yes, it uh, it definitely fits the topic at hand. Uh, this is a really interesting study in looking at the uh, the red wine headache and the fact that it's not as simple as saying, well, the headache was caused because you drank too much wine. What were you looking at here? Well, you know, this is a mystery that's been around for hundreds, probably thousands of years, as to why people who drink red wine get a headache, and they can... They can be free of headache if they drink white wine or other things. And it's not the same, by the way, as a hangover headache. That that happens the next day, you know, hours and hours and hours later, and is a kind of a withdrawal phenomenon. But this happens within a few minutes to a couple of hours, and it's pretty bad. And like I said, it's been a mystery. And uh, all sorts of things like tannins and histamine and sulfites and other things, and the alcohol itself, have been pretty well excluded as causal. And we think we've come up with the culprit, which is a, a, an ingredient in red wine that's not really found much in other drinks and other foods, including not, not much in white wine, called quercetin. And it's not really a toxic substance in itself, but when it's taken with alcohol, it can be pretty toxic and cause the headache. Hmm. And I will fully admit I had not heard of quercetin before. And, and so am I right in saying that it, so it's an antioxidant that, that is found in, the, in, in various uh, fruits and vegetables, grapes as well. So what is it then, or does the study look at what is it about quercetin? What happens when it's mixed with alcohol? Well, it's really interesting. It's actually not a toxic substance itself. In fact, it's, so, it's sold in stores as a nutritional supplement. But when it is taken with alcohol, it seems to impede the metabolism of alcohol in such a way as to cause a buildup of a real toxin called acetaldehyde. Uh, it has to do with the fact that quercetin can inhibit the enzyme that metabolizes acetaldehyde. And like I said, acetaldehyde is a pretty bad toxin. It causes headaches, causes nausea. And I'm, I'm learning more about it actually myself, and it looks to me like Acetaldehyde may be implicated in other things, even cancers. So uh, we're, we're glad to be on the trail of this. Uh, and, you know, it'll be nice to help red wine drinkers perhaps choose different wines that won't give them headaches and maybe help winemakers. But what I'm really interested in is seeing if we can learn a, a bit more about the nature of migraine and headaches in general. And why is it then that this this substance, quercetin, then found in, in again, found naturally in, in fruits, vegetables, grapes, but not everybody gets a headache from red wine or gets that 30 minutes to, to not long after having a glass, not having a, a large amount. It doesn't affect everybody in the same way. Yeah, you put your finger on a, a big question. Why doesn't everybody get it if it's such a 
such a toxic happening. And I think it has to do with the fact that, number one, different people have different levels of the enzymes that help them to, to metabolize this acetaldehyde. But the other thing is I think, I think what happens, and this is something I've noticed for years, I think what happens is that people with migraine and other primary headaches are particularly prone to this kind of headache. So, you know, it takes a certain type of wine. It takes um, a certain amount of alcohol. It takes a predisposition for headaches and then maybe a genetic tendency in terms of the enzymes that one has. You put all that together, and that'll define the group of people who get red wine headaches. But you'll probably, you'll probably get calls in from, from your listeners or maybe people that you know who will tell you how bad this headache is, and it does affect a lot of people. And is there, in the different types of wine then, depending on the wine itself, what grapes are used, how it's processed, does that have an impact on the levels of quercetin in the wine? Yeah, everybody's been interested in this, and, and I am too because I'm not a big wine drinker, but I'll drink maybe a glass of wine per week, something like that, and I like it. And I've noticed that I've been gravitating, when I drink red wines, I've been gravitating to certain certain types. And so my theory is that the wines that typically have fewer quercetins in them, things like Syrahs and Pinot Noirs and Valpolicellas, um, will be safer bet. And so I think we'll be able to have that information for people and you know, like I said earlier, I think it might be even possible to help winemakers reduce quercetins. Hmm. Because it's not something, is it, that you would see on the label? It's not like on, on the label of wine where it would say this product contains sulfites. It's not like you would know the amount of quercetin in a wine, would you? No, exactly. And one of the things we're going to do, and one of we have several studies we'd like to pursue, and one of the studies will involve choosing wines and and specifically and, and accurately assessing the quercetin levels and seeing what happens. And you mentioned this in the fact that it might be linked to other things as well or perhaps other health concerns. So if somebody is hearing this and they, they are very much aware of the red wine headache, and again, not the hangover headache, but the headache that you might get 30 minutes to three hours after having one or two glasses, does the, the, the study here or the research that, that you've been able to uncover so far, is the idea being if you can avoid that, try other wines or avoid any wines that give you that headache, it's a good idea to do that? I think it is. I think this acetaldehyde is, you know, it's something that can cause a bad headache and make people pretty uncomfortable, cause some nausea. But I'm, I'm thinking it may actually do some damage if it happens often enough. So we're steering people when asked to uh, white wine, or hopefully in the future we'll be able to be more specific and and so and help them select different types of wine that will be safe. Uh, where does the research go from here? Well, you know, this is uh, laboratory studies so far, and it, it was really gratifying to see some validation of our theory. We've gone through a few theories, Dr. Waterhouse and I, but um, what we really need to do is see how it uh, plays out in, in people. And so what we want to do is to have people who are prone to red wine headaches take in substances that have more or less quercetin, and we have a few ideas about how to do that. We do need some funding for that. So once we do that, we'll be able to answer some of your questions pretty definitively, I think. Well, it is very interesting research. And again, uh, the takeaway at this point, like you said, there are some varieties of wines or varieties of grapes maybe that weren't exposed to sunlight as much. So there are wines that people could gear towards or or or, or choose that, that you, even though it's not on the label, you don't know how much quercetin is in it. You, you would know it would have a, a, a smaller amount. 
Yeah, I think we can we can have some, we'll have some some sort of guidelines uh, that will come up with after, after we do human studies. Um, and I don't know, you know, I'm not a wine producer or, or maker or know much about the process myself, but I think there are probably ways that uh, winemakers uh, who are, you know, very sophisticated now will be able to, to guide people and guide us a little, you know, a little bit further. All right. Well, Dr. Levin, thank you so much for joining us and for sharing more of the study results with us today. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Jill Bennett Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop? Tune in to the Jill Bennett Show live from noon till 3 on 980 CKNW. Have a question or comment? Send me an email, jill at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.